overlooked. If you're uh, reading Colossians, there's a good chance you may not read this section, uh, and you may not even understand its implications. Basically, how I want to frame this with you this morning is is what we're going to get in this closing remark is a little different than everything else we've read in Colossians so far. So if you've been following to any degree or not, or or if you want just a little bit of catch-up, Paul's in prison. Epaphras, the, the pastor of Colossians, has come uh, to Paul and said, there's some stuff going on in the church. Paul responds by writing this letter. Much of the, the first part of the letter is doctrine, theology. Uh, uh, the best way to put it is Christology. This is who Jesus is. This is the sufficiency of Christ. You don't need to mix Jesus with anything. Jesus alone is the one that you need for forgiveness of sins. Jesus alone is the one that will reconcile you to God the Father. Jesus alone removes guilt and shame. That, that's basically the, the first part of Colossians. Then he gets really practical, talks about families, talks about servants and masters, talks about different instructions. And then in the final greeting, he just lists his, these, these names. And these names are Paul's friends. And so the way I want to look at it this morning is the need of our friends, the need uh, for community that we can't go it alone. And then the second part would be the kind of people, the kind of friends we should be looking for in the church, and the kind of friends and people we should be. Uh, so let me just kind of ask you a question. How many of you remember um, your first kind of really close friend, maybe in junior high or high school? You remember your first friend? My, one of my first buddies, his name was Kip. Uh, from eighth grade into ninth grade, uh, Kip told me, uh, along with his mom, that I was a bad influence and couldn't hang out with me anymore. So it was kind of a, a, a real interesting time for me going into high school, feeling like I didn't have any friends. But then I had a friend up the street. His name was Nick Santa Maria, And uh, Nick was a funny guy. People loved Nick. We became really good friends. He liked football. I started to really like football. And the next thing you know, I, I ended up finding a good team and good friendship because of football. And the reality of that became really important to me. That, that's why I'm such a big advocate for football, because football brought in another father figure and Coach Schaefer, who was the coach at the time. Uh, and we had a common goal that we were shooting for, a, a commonality that we were driving for. And it just was a, a good time to uh, bond with people and have that common goal. Uh, my kids uh, recently, in the last 18 months, have gotten into jiu-jitsu. And the gym here uh, well, not just the gym, jiu-jitsu by and large does an amazing job teaching uh, those who are, who are practitioners of jiu-jitsu of what it is to work as a team and what it is to work through di- like hardship and, and difficulty. Uh, so yesterday, uh, my three kids who all do jiu-jitsu just went to their first tournament in Tracy, uh, California. So big event, 700 kids, right? I mean, this place just packed to the max. Uh, so 700 kids competing. Then you've got your parents, so you know, and grandparents. So this gym is just—it was a zoo. And I looked over at my wife as we were sitting down. And I said, "Somebody's going to get COVID here, for sure." <laughs> and no one's wearing masks; they're just all there. And um, and so, before we went to the um, the tournament, I knew because we had been forewarned by our coach for the kids, because uh, our kids did some practice tournaments that when they practice, the practice is going to be different than the tournament because our kids for their entire training have been training with their friends, most of their friends, which attend Sierra Bible Church. Now, seriously, we've got like 30 or 40 kids that go to the jiu-jitsu gym here, and that's why Caleb's doing jiu-jitsu, so he can prepare for when those kids can out-wrestle him in youth group. And, uh, 
And so anyways, we're, I'm, I'm telling our kids the similar thing is stuff that I've learned from athletics, right? Which is, okay, hey, listen, especially in jiu-jitsu, win or lose, because it's going to be different. It's going to be harder. You're gonna, you're, because when the kids are in the, the gym with their friends, they're like giggling as they're trying to submit each other. It's hard to take choking someone out serious when you're giggling, right? And you're just kind of having a good time. But once you go into the tournament, that's the real deal. They're not giggling. They're, they're competing to win. And the coach let us know, hey, hey, you're going to see quite possibly your own kids cry. They're going to get thrown down. Kid's going to quickly put them in an arm bar or a chokehold, and they're going to cry. And so I'm preparing you know, myself for that. I'm preparing my, my kids for that. And I let them know, hey, when you go, when you go, Remember, jiu-jitsu is not about winning or losing, and it isn't. It's about being put in a difficult situation, learning how to think through that situation, and if you fail, you learn more from your failures, and you know this as parents, right? You should know this as a successful person. If you're successful, you learn far more from your, fa- your failures than your successes. And so I'm building my kids up for, hey, no matter what. In fact, I'm, 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 in, part, I'm in part hoping um, that, that there is some failure so that we can work this through with my kids. And, um, you know, by God's grace and my, the way my kids are built, my two young, older boys uh, totally swept their little weight divisions, and they both got gold medals, and uh, they were really excited about it. And, uh, and then my daughter, she went one and one. And she probably should have medaled, but they kind of messed up her bracket. And so she was really disappointed, right, because her two older brothers are coming home with these gold medals, and she's not coming home with anything. And so I had the opportunity to teach my daughter what I'd learned through sports and difficulty. There are hardships in life, and it's not about win or lose. It's about learning from it. And I shared with her how when I played football, uh, I actually was a part of three state championship football teams here in Truckee, California. We lost the first two. And then one, the, the third one, my senior year, we actually were able to win. And I was trying to share with her through my own disappointments, through our team's disappointment, that, that through those disappointments, we were able to get to a place where we could be victorious. And part of those disappointments led to some of the kids on my senior high team saying, you know, during the football season, we're going to abstain from drugs. We're going to abstain from alcohol. We're going to abstain from partying because we want to win state championship and we want to do it for Coach Schaefer. And, and we did. We accomplished that. Now, now, likewise, I share all of that just as a backdrop to say this is in part what Paul is dealing with. He, he's been dealing with difficulties and hardships, and he's got a good team of people around him. So the goal this morning, again, is to drive into us as we conclude this, this Colossian uh, book that is, is teaching against the heresies in Colossae. We need a good team of people around us, and we need to be part of a good team. We need to be a part of that good team to overcome the, the hardship and the struggle that is this life. So if you remember, Paul has said on several occasions in Colossians and other books as well, that to live a life as a Christian is to be in battle. That we're at war. We're at war with the world. We're at war with our, our own flesh at times. And we know that there's the spiritual principalities that are against us. We're at war. And we can't go it alone. That's point number one. You cannot do this Christian life alone. You can't do it in solitude. You can't do it by yourself month after month on a computer screen. You need people. We actually see this in the book of Exodus. If you remember the story of Moses and the Israelites are about to fight the evil Amalekites. And the Amalekites are coming against Israel. And Moses realizes that if he holds up the staff in the air, his staff in the air, the Israelites are going to win the battle. But he begins to get weary. And that staff during during his battle and, and hardship starts to get low 
And, and so what ends up happening is he has two great other leaders around him, Aaron and Hur, who put a rock beneath him so he can sit down, and Aaron and Hur help hold up Moses' arms so that they can overcome the battle. And likewise, this list of names and people is this reminder. We need Aaron's, we need hers, we need people who are going to put that rest underneath our seat that we can chill out a little bit. We need people to hold up our arms. But we also recognize that, that we need good leaders, right? When we think about not going it alone, we need good leaders, and we need good leaders that aren't solo leaders, okay? You don't want your pastor to be the guy that makes all the calls, uh, let me share with you a great story from Numbers chapter 11. I think it's, it's encouraging. It's encouraging for me because I have felt this in the last 18 months. But this is what Moses says. Moses is leading God's people. Remember, right? The, the anointing of God has fallen on Moses. We went through Exodus several months back last summer, I believe. And, um, and so God calls Moses to lead all of the Israelites. And if you remember, the Israelites are complaining at one moment. They don't have meat. Another moment... They're complaining about the manna, and they're complaining about not having enough water. They're just complaining, complaining, even though they're no longer in slavery to Pharaoh. And so as Moses leads them out, Moses prays to God, because that's what any good leader does for his people. And this is what he prays in Numbers chapter 11, starting in verse 11. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this people on me? This is Moses' prayer. Why do you think so badly of me that you would make me the leader of these people? He goes on and says, did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth? And you should say, carry them in your bosom and nurse them as a child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers. Then verse 13, where am I going to give meat to all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. This is what he says. Listen, this is the heart. Just just to let you know, 18 months of what pastors and leaders of communities have been wrestling through in the last 18 months, this is a similar prayer that I think most of us have prayed at some point. Verse 15, if you'll treat me like this, just kill me at once if I'll find favor in your sight. That's Moses' prayer. He's like, God, it's so difficult to lead. I would rather you just take me out. And you know, in the last 18 months, there's been this like, and I, you know this. You know it's just been weird. But for leaders in particular of churches, uh, leaders in particular, it's been hard. You've had people who have left our church. Just, a, just transparency. There have been, been people. It's a small group. But there have been people who have left our church because of the way in which we've handled the pandemic. That's just the reality. And they've gone to other churches in our area because of it. Now, on the flip side of that, some of you were here because of the way your church handled the pandemic. And because you're here. And what happened in that, and that kind of change, was it showed, okay, well, what kind of loyalty do I have and why? And many of you came here because you knew that you needed community and you needed family and you needed fellowship. And many of you said, it's, I'm willing to take the risk, my own mitigated risk, to be in fellowship and possibly get a virus because it's worth being in fellowship. So you came to a place where the doors were open and there were going to be no hindrances if you wanted to come and freely worship Jesus as you were. And that's the conviction of the leadership, which, by the way, like Moses, this is what happened after Moses prayed this prayer. God says, okay, go take men, get 70 of them, and put them in charge of tens and hundreds and, and what have you. And likewise, in our church, just by way of those of you who are new, we are an elder-led church with what we call a first among equals. 
All that to be said, what that means is we, we recognize that, that me is the lead pastor who's preaching. I have a, a little bit of a, a stronger voice because I'm up here more than the other guys are. However, that doesn't mean that I get two votes on anything because I don't. I'm held accountable to the elders of the church. Some of them are staff and some of them are lay elders. Andrew Holbrook, who's here in the corner, uh, keeping me safe back there, right? He, um, he's one of our elders, uh, along with Pastor Wayne and um, Doug Brown and a few others. They help hold me accountable. And they hold me accountable to several different things. Number one, that I would preach the word of God uncompromisingly. Number two, that I would preach the gospel. And number three, that our decisions would be driven by those other two things. And so what you want, just so you know, you don't ever want the guy who's ahead of the community in, this, in the church, you never want this guy behind this pulpit to have the say of anything that goes. Amen? You don't, trust me. I've got some weird preferences that, that you don't want as part of this church. And I, ha- I submit myself every year to a, a staff review. Andrew's again, he's part of that. And every year I submit myself and they say, these are the things we think you're doing well. These are the things we don't think you're doing so well. These are the things maybe we could improve upon. What are some other things that you think you can improve upon? I submit myself, and so does the rest of the staff, to a transparent openness of, okay, that's hard to do, right? But good, healthy communities understand they can't go it alone. And in service, which all of us are in service to the Lord, need people around us who are going to help us accomplish more than we could alone. And so with this great transference, there have been been all these changes. People have moved. People have come. What I told you last week, the great blessed hope of of that couple who moved uh, from Idaho, and they're still here, and praise God for that. That's amazing, by the way, you know? People moving from Idaho to California should be rejoiced in. We need more of those people. And then lastly, we need the right kind of people around us because it helps with our maturation. It helps with us growing. It helps us, again, so I'm, I'm going to, what kind of friend are you? What kind of friends do you have around you? What kind of team do you have? Are you rallying together? It, Proverbs 27, 17 says it really clearly. Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. A- another verse that I think's poignant is Proverbs 13. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. You will never find hardly ever Paul being alone. He was always with someone he was always with people individually. He was with weak people. He was with strong people because he understood the gospel and the word of God is not just about ideas. It's ultimately about community. The gospel and, and the word of God are not just about ideas, but it's about people. And Paul inspired teamwork, community, and loyalty. And so as he closes this letter, he, he encourages this kind of loyalty and teamwork. So what we're going to do this morning which is different than the rest of the letter, is we're just going to go through these eight names, some of them faster than other, others. And if you can, one, I th- one pastor says, this is kind of looking at like a family portrait and just going by each person and saying, this is, this is Robbie, this is Bobby, this is Bill, this is Sue or whatever, right? Or another way to put it is this is kind of like a series of tweets by each name. This is this guy, this is this guy. Or another way to put it would be an Instagram kind of story to kind of translate it for those of you who are spending too much time on social media. <laughs> so the right kind of people, right? So here's what we're going to do. At this point, we're going to honor the word of God. We're going to read our final section of Colossians together. And if you have the ability to this morning, 
kind of stretch out a little bit. Position your minds and your feet and your bodies if you could stand with me this morning if you're able. And we will honor God's word together as we read it. Verse uh, 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, they're the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf, in his prayers that, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, and so does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Lord, position us now to hear from you, learn from you, to love you more. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Please be seated. All right, so let's just talk about these guys. It's actually kind of fun. These are character studies, right? If you will, it's a, it's a photograph of men that have traveled with Paul or interacted with Paul on some level or another. So Tychicus is an encourager. If we're going to just put labels, we'll put him as an encouragement. Uh, not only was he an encourager, he was someone who was willing to serve. He had a deep willingness to travel with Paul. And traveling with Paul, just so you know, and the travels he took with Paul was no easy thing whatsoever. In fact, one author says of traveling that Tychicus would have crossed much of Italy on foot. He then would have sailed across the Adriatic Sea, Adriatic Sea, and after traversing Greece on foot, he would sail across the Aegean Sea to the coast of Asia Minor. And then after that, he still faced a journey of nearly 100 miles on foot to reach Colossae. The fact that he was entrusted delivering, in addition to this, as Paul tells him, deliver these three inspired books of Scripture indicates a deep trust that Paul has in this man to be a servant of him. And later, in fact, Paul will actually say that Tychicus is to replace Timothy for a short time. So Timothy... The, as the pastor of Ephesus, so Timothy can visit Paul. So what does all this mean? There's two things about this individual I think that are important. One, a willing to serve. All of us should have hearts of service, and all of us should surround ourselves around people who have hearts of service. There's this really interesting study. They've actually done multiple studies uh, where, where they've followed what kind of person you are directly has a direct correlation with the kind of people you hang out with. And they've seen a direct correlation between everything from, from, get this, weight, that you're the average of the amount of people around you, right? Like, like if you're overweight, you probably have a tendency to be hanging out with overweight people. In addition to that, one of the things uh, that they'll say is that um, your demeanor, uh, the, the amount of money you make, all of these different things are correlated 
with who you hang out with. And so when Paul is saying in this closing letter, you're in a battle, you know you can't do it alone, you need to be people of service, and you need to be people, you need to have people who hang around you that are willing to serve, and you need to have people who are an encouragement to you. As he says here, he is my beloved brother, faithful minister, and servant in the Lord. And look as it goes on in verse 8, that he may encourage your heart. So Paul's saying, I'm sending him back to you, not only because he's got this heart of service, but because he knows how to encourage you. Now, don't all of us need more people of encouragement? I mean, we live in a culture that is constantly pessimistic. We live in a culture that is constantly telling us what is wrong with the culture, what is difficult with the culture, what is hard with the culture. I'm convinced that what we need more of in this community, what we need more of in the world, are people of encouragement. Yes, the world is falling apart, but Jesus is still on the throne. Amen? Yes, the world is going to decay. Yes, people are hurting. But we know the God of healing. We know the God that comforts. We know the God that is present in difficulty. And so because of this, Paul calls this man a beloved brother, a faithful servant who I send to encourage. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says to us, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. So there's this idea that we should be using words of affirmation words of encouragement, and then doing what we can to help build each other up in our difficulties. You know why this is so difficult? It means you need to be known by people. You have to open up your heart to people. So that's the first type of person that should be in the church community, right? This list, just so we're aware, it's not a comprehensive list. So this isn't like the only people that exist in the church. But for our sake this morning, these are the kind of people that Paul hung out with. And by way of encouragement, these are the kind of people we should strive to be. Paul tells us to consider our leaders and the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. So Paul says you should be looking to good leaders, consider the way of their life, how is it going for them, and if it's going well, you should imitate their faith. And hopefully your leaders are such men and women as that. So you have Tychicus, who's this encourager, but then you have Onesimus. So one is an encouraging servant, right? That's, that's, that's number one, first kind of person we need, uh, an encouraging servant. The second one is Onesimus. What about Onesimus? You find Onesimus in this small, brief, but very beautiful book called Philemon. How many of you read Philemon? It was actually one of the very first books I had, I, I, uh, had to use in uh, study to learn how to exegete Scripture properly and how to study and how to do... Uh, background study and all of that, because it's a small book and it's not overwhelming and you can do it. But this is the book of Onesimus or, or, or Philemon. So Onesimus is a slave in the book of Philemon to the man named Philemon. So you got this guy Onesimus, he's a slave to Philemon. Now Onesimus, just so you know, we have to always do this kind of work because people think that the Bible advocates and is okay with slavery. But that it's, slavery in the Bible is never how we think of it in the Americas. Uh, in our history. Slavery in the Bible was you basically became an employee to your master until you paid a debt off that you owed the master. So Philemon um, had a debt that was owed by Onesimus. Onesimus owed Philemon money. And so Onesimus was a slave to Philemon. Now what ends up happening is Philemon goes, forget this, I don't want to be a slave. I don't want to work off my debt. So he bails and he runs to Rome. Okay, so he takes off on his master, takes off on his obligation to pay his debt. This is kind of like 
taking your visa statement, ripping it up and throwing it in the trash and pretending like you don't owe it. Right? You're still going to get another letter, by the way. And, and so he takes off, and guess who he runs into? The Apostle Paul. And so as he runs into the Apostle Paul in Rome, Paul starts talking to, um, is that me? Oh, yep, that is me. The wire. It's the wire. I'll try not to move. It's okay, Tim. I'll try not to move. I'll move less. Talk more. <laughs> um, so he takes off. He runs into Paul. And this is what Paul does. Paul writes the book of Philemon, gives this letter to Onesimus, says, Onesimus, take this back with you. Because he, when he encounters Paul, I, got, I left this part out. When he encounters Paul, what do you think happens to Onesimus? He gives his life to Jesus. Because that's what happens when you talk to Paul. So he gives his life to Jesus. Paul writes the letter, gives the letter to Philemon, tells Philemon, go back to your master and be a good servant. But in the letter, (laughs) that chord is bad on here, I think. Um, What do you want me to do? good all right um but in the letter in the letter back to uh philemon i'm sorry back yes back to philemon in that letter back to philemon he addresses philemon and says philemon when you bring onesimus back you treat him like a fellow brother and so philemon does and the relationship between philemon and onesimus is is forever changed and and the the way that i like to kind of put this and the way i would like to put it this morning And I think there's all kinds of other implications to this, some very beautiful implications. But in regards to the kind of friends we should have and the kind of people we should have in the church, we should have people with what I would call salty pasts. You had a guy who didn't know Jesus, who ran away from his obligation, encountered the gospel of Jesus, received Jesus, went back to his home and received grace and newness because the Bible teaches that when you come into contact with Jesus, you become a new creature. The old man is gone, and the new man is alive. Now, this is a great tension for me in, in, as a pastor because, because as we grow as Christians, sometimes, unfortunately, we start to think we get polished in our relationship with Jesus, and we forget that Jesus is really into having people with salty pasts in the church. Are you with me? I absolutely love hanging out with non-believers. Because non-believers remind me of my need for Jesus because I can see myself in them. And it reminds me that, that, that as, Jesus, as Jesus looks upon people who don't know him, he doesn't judge them as, oh, I can't believe they would do those things, but rather that's what people who don't know Jesus do. And so what happens in the church is we should be a place that embraces those who have shown a true repentance of their sin, whatever, whatever that sin may be whatever that salty past may be. And I love people with salty past because I'm somebody with a salty past. Anybody else have a salty past? 
Somebody's like, I had a salty yesterday. <laughs> right? It's true. And, and, and this leads me into the next name. This is number three. Onesimus, being somebody with a past, we need those people who have a testimony of a transformed life. The testimonies are powerful. Revelations teaches us that, that we'll overcome the demonic realm by the blood of the lamb that is the forgiveness that we receive from Jesus Christ on the cross. But they will also overcome the enemy by the testimony that is the, your story of salvation, whatever that story may be. That is a powerful story to hear when somebody comes to Jesus Christ for the first time and they give their, their lives to the Lord. One of the things that's happened that's been a blessing in the last 18 months, some of you have left other churches to come here. Okay, I understand why. And some of you have started coming to church for the first time because the church is the only place that's actually living life anymore. And so there have been people who've literally said, I need to come somewhere, go somewhere, because I'm dying being alone. And I need to be with somebody. And then someone says, well, we've got a place where there's a lot of people every single Sunday. You should come check it out. And I've shared this before, but it just has to be repeated often because it must be celebrated. It is a glorious thing that people who are non-Christians are coming to a Christian church and they come and they start feeling and sensing the beauty that is in the room. And then they ask the question, why is there beauty in the room and why are these relationships the way they are? And then we point right back to the one who died on the cross for our sins. The reason we have a community of believers and the reason that most of us, not all, but most of us are doing well in the last 18 months is because we've gathered together to worship the one that is worthy of worship. Because Jesus never intended for his people to be living in isolation and alone, ever, under any kind of warfare, any kind of hardship, any kind of pandemic, we are never, ever, ever to be isolated and alone. And all you have to do is do some studies in prison on what it does to a prisoner to be in isolation just for 24 hours. And some of you don't know that to the extent that I know that because my my biological father spent 10 years in Folsom prison and spent time in isolation, sometimes days at a time. And it does not take long to start ruining someone psychologically. I was listening to the radio this morning, and they said, even 18 months in, people are still in a cycle of gaining weight and not exercising after 18 months. They just can't find the motivation to get back in the gym, to get back in community. And the sad thing is, and if you know these people, I just ask you to pray and encourage them. The sad thing is some people who left church over the last 18 months, they're not coming back. They're just not coming back. Even though they've been vaccinated, even though they're, they can wear a mask, even though they can find a place to social distance, they're just not coming back. And many of these mega churches that have really made their churches surrounded by entertainment and music and light shows, I've listened to some of these guys. They're begging their people to come back. And their people aren't coming back. And all that to be said, we need people with salty pass, and we need people, this is number three, like Aristarchus, who are compassionate and soft-hearted people, people who understand your pain. Why do I say that? Well, Paul uses this language in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. Now, it's interesting that Paul would call this man a fellow prisoner because in nowhere in the New Testament does he actually go to prison. We do find him... Uh, in a place in Acts chapter 19, uh, when a mob arises and a crowd of people grab Aristarchus and they drag him through the city in Acts chapter 19. We do see that. But he never actually goes to prison. So the language that Paul uses for my fellow prisoner means one caught with a spear. 
The language that he's actually using to connotate who the Aristarchus is, is that he is a man who carries my imprisonment in his heart. He's been pierced with the same kind of pangs as Paul. It's a way of him saying, I am empathetic and I am compassionate to the, to the pain that Paul has gone through. So this is number three. We need people who are compassionate and understanding of what people are going through. Someone corrected me last week, and I appreciated the, correct, the correction. I said last week, um, and I say this every now and then because it's important to kind of do some hard assessment, but when I said last week, I think something along the lines of, what comes to mind when you think of the leaders in our country? Right? What do you think when you think of the leaders of our country? And someone uh, came to me after the service and said, you know, hey, just want to correct you, uh, not a big deal, but they're not our leaders, they're our representatives. Okay, there's a big difference. So as Christians, this is what, it's a big difference, especially for the church, because we only have one leader and master. And this is Jesus. And so these other men, we vote in to represent us. And sometimes the man you didn't vote ends up representing you. And then when he's representing you and he's saying certain things, what comes to mind when he's saying the things that you disagree with? Right? Let's not be too honest this morning. But there's, there are things that come to mind that are difficult. But, but listen, in Matthew chapter 9, you see a place where the crowds of people are literally following Jesus. And they're following Jesus not because they want to make him master or Lord, but they're following Jesus to get the things from Jesus. Not to get Jesus himself, but to get the things of Jesus. They want the, the extra loaves, the extra fish. They want to see the miracles. They want to see the, the, the speech. There were things that attracted people to Jesus that weren't necessarily Jesus himself. And so you would think that if there's this huge crowd of people who are following Jesus for false motives, which happens in the church every Sunday, by the way, that there are people who follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. So these people come and follow Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Jesus is standing there before a massive crowd of people, thousands of people, and the words that he uses, I think, are very important because they're similar to the heart of the one who's been pierced with the spear, that is our strictest. It says that he looks across the crowds of people and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Right? When you think of those who represent us, at the end of the day, the reason that they are misrepresenting our values are because they haven't encountered the great gospel of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus. When you encounter Jesus, you're never the same. And so those who disagree with us we must find ways to be compassionate towards them. We have to find ways. The great Spurgeon says, if we'd sum up the whole character of Christ in reference to ourselves, like we think about, just, who, just first, I had to put a picture of Spurgeon up. Look at this G. This guy's like, there's some pictures of him with cigars in his hand and stuff. This guy was awesome. And uh, he ate a ton of meat and he had gout and everything, so he was super unhealthy, but he loved Jesus. <clears throat> If you would sum up the whole character of Christ in reference to ourselves, it might be gathered into one sentence. He was moved with compassion. And when we think, how come Jesus intervened in our life and saved us? It's because he's compassionate. He understands your hurt. Right? Okay, so, so here's three characters so far. You've got, you've got the, the, the one who's an encourager, and he's a prayer warrior. You have Onesimus, who has a past. And then you've got this compassionate Aristarchus, right? The, the soft-hearted kind of people. And so, again, let's just kind of do a quick little survey. How soft-hearted are you? You know, are you, are you accepting of people's pasts? Are you willing to embrace them? And do you pray for people and are you encouragement? 
Which leads us to our fourth guy, Mark. Now, Mark has a real interesting story, too. I'm going to call this guy, we need people with potential. People with potential. And the reason I say this is because you've got to know Mark's story, just like you've got to know Onesimus and Philemon's story. Mark, Mark was the cousin of Barnabas, the encourager. Barnabas and Paul were buddies. So Mark uh, and Barnabas go on Paul's very first missionary journey. So you've got three guys, Mark, Paul, Barnabas. They're traveling for Jesus' name. We're going to go on a mission trip together. It's going to be a blast. We're all buddies. We're all unified. We've got a common goal. Let's go get them. Things get hard. And all of a sudden, Mark says, John Mark's his full name, I'm out. Later, I'm gone. I can't do this. I can't handle it. Mark bails on Paul, bails on Barnabas. Now remember, Barnabas and uh, um, Mark are related. So then Paul goes on a second missionary trip. Barnabas shows up with Silas, with Paul, along with Mark again. And he says, hey, we want to go with you. Let's go. We'll all go together. And Paul says, absolutely not. I don't trust Mark. Mark bailed on us the first time. He's going to bail on us again. Then in the conversation between Barnabas, I'm sorry, not Barnabas. I messed this up last time. Yeah, Barnabas and Paul, they end up getting in a fight with one another, and they split. Barnabas takes Mark to his own missionary journey. Paul ends up taking Silas on his own missionary journey, which is just a kind of, I think, a neat lesson to show that if you have leaders who disagree, Sometimes God, well, not sometimes, God will still use those disagreeing leaders to still propagate the gospel in different directions of the world. That's good news, by the way, that in spite of disagreements of sinful people. But what's interesting is later, we don't know everything that happens, but later in 2 Timothy, Paul says, go get Mark, bring him to me because he's useful for ministry. Somewhere along the lines, Mark matured became a strong Christian, and now in this letter, look at the language that Paul uses exactly for him in regards to Mark. Look at verse 10. If he comes to you, Mark, speaking of Mark, do what? Welcome him. Don't hold his past against him. Don't judge him. Don't sit down on the table and go, what were you thinking leaving Paul? Don't bring up his junk. You welcome him. And then the potential behind Mark, which is quite amazing, is he wrote the Gospel of Mark. A guy who at one time bailed on one of his fellow leaders, bailed on ministry, figured out what he did was wrong. Paul figured out what he did was wrong. They came back together. They reconciled, which is another key component of the Christian church, that when we disagree and we hurt each other, we should always be moving back towards reconciliation. Do you know couples that are married that that's true of your marriage as well? Everything that you do in marriage when it starts to get difficult should be a move towards reconciliation. And what makes a team strong isn't that that team is perfect, but when they mess up, they move back to reconciliation. Right? You you know this if you're married, that marriage, uh, that teamwork of marriage and the second chances you need in marriage are super, super real. Any husbands have needed a second chance in their marriage? Have any wives needed a second chance? The boys were way more like, I need a second chance than the girls on there. Marriage, marriage, man, it's like, it's, a, it's the perfect mirror, isn't it? It's just like getting up in the morning, and you look at yourself in the mirror, and you're like, oh, not so much now, but when I was playing football, you know, when I was a teenager, I'd get zits on my head and stuff. I'm like, oh, there's one, what I do with that? 
There's another one, right? When you do something about those things, I, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to anyway. I was hanging out with Joe Casey, our children's director, the other day, and he was wearing a, he'd been wearing a beanie all day, and his beanie lifted up, and he's got, he's got some real old man eyebrows, you know, like, you know, the Wolverine eyebrows that's sticking out like that? I looked at I just started cracking up, and he had a good laugh. He handled it well, and he's like, he's doing this, he's licking his hands and like trying to like stick them all down, and I've got one of those Wolverine ones, one blonde one hangs down in here, and I oh, grab it, throw it away, you know. It's like Paul, James says, hey, every now and then you're going to see yourself in the mirror, you're going to see these things, and you're either going to do something or you're going to walk away and pretend that it's not there, and marriage is that ultimate mirror. I mean, I woke up this morning, and my wife reminded me of something that wasn't okay that I did yesterday at the kids' tournament, right? The first thing on a Sunday morning before I come and preach, right, I, I get out of the shower. I've, I've done my prayers. I've maybe listened to some worship music, and I'm coming to church to be a spiritual man for all y'all, right? Here I am. Here comes Holy Jesse. And then my wife hugs me and goes, well, what did you know? What did you know? Huh. I don't want to talk to you. I'm driving down here trying to figure out, I once felt great about myself. Now I don't feel so good about myself. But then that reality is, is when you see those things, you recognize that Jesus is always in the business of giving us second chances to reconcile our relationships and make them right. And that there is potential in people. And any good leader has the ability to see potential in people that they don't even see for themselves. Right? Do you remember the the, I did the same thing in the first service. Someone's going to have to help me out again in the second service. But the, uh, the guy who's threshing wheat in the cave. What's his name? Gideon, thank you. Yeah, that guy. You know that guy. Gideon. And the reason I bring up Gideon is because he's a great example of a guy that, that if you look up the story of Gideon, Gideon is found by God threshing wheat in a dangerous time in a cave. And when you first read that, and you're like, okay, he's Gideon, and then God comes to him, what's the big deal? You don't thresh wheat in a cave. That's not what you do. Because it, it, it doesn't breathe well. It's not ventilated well. You thresh wheat outside. And if you read the story, you understand that he's afraid, and he's scared, and he's nervous, and he's not completely trusting God, so he's in a cave threshing wheat so he doesn't die. God shows up, his spirit shows up to Gideon, and he says, Gideon, mighty man of valor. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, God, you're tripping, dude. He's hiding in a cave. You call him, he's, he's not being godly. He's not being a man. And he's definitely not carrying val valor. Why would you do that? Because God saw something in Gideon no one else saw, especially Gideon. And here's the deal. In good, healthy community, you have people around you, and you become people who see things in people that calls them to a higher level to be the people that God wants them to be right do you do you see that in other people and are you encouraging them like our buddy earlier does are you encouraging them to to go the extra mile to do the extra thing i remember the very first time a pastor in san diego said that they believed i could be a good bible teacher and i made the great mistake of believing him <laughs> and so we went on a 30-day missions trip and during those 30 days I was scheduled to preach down in Mexico all these different times. I preached one time, and I ruined it so badly, I delegated all of the rest of my teaching the rest of the 30 days. It's like, there's no way. And I thought at that moment, I can't be a preacher. I'll never be a preacher. And yet in God's loving, compassionate, sovereign grace, he has established 
my steps to be that which I never thought I could or should be. And likewise, God has these things in his people that he's calling us to do more of. What is that for you? What are the things that you have felt? And I've heard these things over the years, and I just want to rebuke them. I'm not good enough. I can't do it because I don't know enough. You know, I, I don't, I'm not studied enough. I haven't been saved enough or I'm new. No, like there's things that God sees in you that he can develop in you over time that you could represent him well and help the kingdom of God grow. And then here's the fifth one. So that's Mark, second chancers. And then you've got the fifth one. You've got a guy by the name of Jesus. They don't want to confuse him with the Savior, so they call him Justice. Now here's, here's what we know about justice. Nothing. This is it. And so I'll just say this about justice and the kind of people and friends we should have. We should be hanging out with the little known. Right there, Every single Sunday, there are people who come here that are not well known. People don't know much about them, and we should embrace them in the community and get to know them. Paul obviously knew him, but, but the rest of us don't. And I think it's an encouragement for us, and number five, to look for and embrace the often overlooked. And then number six is a guy we've mentioned over the last several months, Epaphras, in verse 12. He's the pastor of Colossae. He's one of them. And what Paul specifically says about him is, He's praying for you, but he's struggling and laboring on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand fully assured in the will of God. And he's laboring, he says, he's working. This is to say we need men and women in the church who are willing to serve God and get their calluses dirty. You ever see a weightlifter and see what his, his hands look like? This is the kind of guys we need. Guys that are willing to set up and tear down and you know, every single week, people don't realize this, but every single week, you know, these chairs get put up and they get taken down and the stage gets taken down so that we can do a wana in here so we can have 100 kids running around learning about Jesus in the room. Every single week, same thing happens next door. I mean, you, you hear me share all of the things that we're doing as a church, the, the, the night out and, and a wana and, and youth group. What you don't hear are all the other places that use our facility because we're one of the only facilities that are open in the area still. All kinds of organizations contact us, say, would you allow us to use the facility? And, and by way of grace and by way of service to the community, we say, yes. You know what that requires, don't you? More setup, more teardown, more cleaning, more organization, more admin, more all of it. And they go, well, how much do you charge for it? We're not going to charge you. We want to be a blessing to you. Right? All of these things lead us to the fact that we need people who know how to work. And, and that's getting harder, isn't it? I mean, I, it's not just a trucky thing where people are saying, looking for employees. Who would have thought you could make $20 an hour at McDonald's? Things get real hard here. You know where to find me. <laughs> right? That's pretty good. 20 bucks an hour at McDonald's. That's mind-boggling. But God has designed us to work. It's not just for the betterment of the economy. It's for the betterment of your soul. I like how Piper says it. Let's, Let's dive into his words. He says, work is a glorious thing. If you are starting to grow lazy, I summon you back to joy. I like that. God made us to work. He formed our minds to think and our hands to make. He gave us strength, little or great, to be about the business of altering the way things are. 
That is what work is. It's seeing the world, thinking of how it could be better, and then doing something. From the writing of a note to the building of a boat, from the sewing of what you wear to the praying of a prayer, come leave off sloth and idleness, become what you were made to be, and work. Work changes the world. And as we as Christians, we say, this is the thing, we forget this sometimes. When, when, G, when God spoke to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, multiply, but I'm giving you the world to be in charge of. Christians should be known more than anyone else for the care of the world in which we live in. You know, we don't become tree, tree huggers, God forbid that. We don't worship creation, we worship the creator But the creator gave us creation that we would have dominion over the creation and that we wouldn't abuse it, but we would use it for the glory of God. Right? All of those things should declare the goodness of Jesus, which means anything we have dominion over, we should be asking God as a good community seeking after that which is God's, how can I use these resources well? So now we add to that list a passion and a willingness to work. And then number seven, we're almost done. Luke. He mentions Luke. You know who Luke is, don't you? He's the doctor. Very intelligent, highly educated, gentle man, Gentile man. He wasn't a Jew. Gentile man who was highly educated, but he often traveled with Paul, and he wrote the book of Luke as well as the book of Acts. And he wrote those things, he says, so that we would know the truth. I'll just say this. All of us need people like Mark. Mark was a little bit more simple-minded. And all of us need people who will stimulate our thinking, who are intelligent and well-trained like Dr. Luke. We need doctors. We need people who are educated. I I can only imagine, especially if you read Luke in the original Greek, which I don't, I'm not going to pretend like I've done that because I haven't. But if his Greek is actually a very nuanced, complex Greek, shows how high his education was. I can only imagine that his conversations with Paul, who, who he was also highly educated, was very much stimulating for their own minds. And all of us need people that we can have conversations with that stimulate our minds, that educate us, that drive us to more. All of us need people who are going to help us to grow this thing. So if, if, if the guy before us in Epaphras has calluses on, our, in a, on his hands, we need men who have calluses in their brains. We do need bookworms, and we need bookworms to teach us. And by the way, what's really neat about Paul, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not Paul, but Luke, is he was willing to leave his own practice of being a doctor, quite possibly leave behind a lucrative practice, to take his doctorate skills, his doctor skills, and go into the mission field and use them for the glory of Jesus. He's the first prototype of the doctor who leaves the country for lesser money for the glory of God. So we need people who are willing to abandon even lucrative businesses that are intelligent, that stimulate conversation to the glory of the Lord. Luke would be a great way to end this list, but that's not how Paul ends it. He gives us one more name. Number eight and the last one, Demas. Now you would think in reading this, you'd say, hey, <clears throat> Demas, what about him? What's good about him? He, he should encourage us to be like Paul, but later we actually find out more about Demas. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. For Demas, Paul says, in love with the present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Jesus had his Judas, and Paul had his Demas. And it's just a reminder of a couple things. Number one, you just never know who's going to abandon you. 
Number two, the love of the world can capture people that seem like servants of the Lord. And this is a warning that if we're going to be the kind of community that is running after the prize. But I shared, I shared earlier, I Coach Bob Schaefer, and I can give you a list of names, some that even come to church here that I played football with in high school. Right, we, we sacrificed much. I've never spent more time in a weight room and running. I joined track. I hate running. And I joined track to win a state championship game. That's how much I wanted to win it. You know what? If you walk into my garage today, you walk past a 1969 Fastback Mustang that my dad built, and you'll look on the wall, and you'll see a trophy. It says 1997 state champion right there. What's next to it also has another trophy, all state running back for Tahoe Truckee High School. You know who cares about those trophies? Nobody. My kids not once have walked in that garage and been like, Dad, that's impressive. <laughs> not one of my friends have walked in that garage and said, Dad, that's impressive. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. And yet all of this effort and energy was put forth for a perishable trophy that one day my kids will throw away. <laughs> and yet Paul is telling us that all of this, being part of a good family, being part of a good church community, is worth the crown in heaven that Jesus will leave for you in heaven that will never perish. And I hate having to say this all the time, but I do in our culture because if I don't, I'm not challenging you to be the people of God. There is so much more for us to do in Tahoe, Truckee, California. But in order for us to do that, we have to dive into this beautiful community that God has given us. And we can't be like Demas and allow the love of the world to take us away from the beauty of what the church is. Some of you are going to have to say no to some ski trips because Jesus is worth it. Some of you are going to have to say no to some vacations because Jesus is worth it. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me when a family has their child go all of their life and they miss all of these Sunday church services or all of these youth group events because of all of the different athletics they do and then their kid turns 18 and they walk away from Jesus and they start drinking, they start doing drugs and the parent goes, I, mean, I just don't understand why they walked away from the Lord. Well, because subconsciously you taught your kids church doesn't matter. Sports matters. Friendship with the world matters. Friendship with people who don't know Jesus matters. Right? I, I tell parents all the time, it's perfectly acceptable to tell your kids on Sunday mornings, you're coming to church. I know you don't like it. I know you think Jesse's boring. I know you think I'm boring. Be here. One day you're going to hear the right message, your kid's going to hear the right message, they're going to get it subconsciously and consciously. Jesus is worth worshiping. The world has nothing to offer you. Can I just berate on that? Can I just loudly proclaim to the congregation, this world has nothing to offer you of eternal value. It all burns, just like my trophy. Just like that 1969 Fastback Mustang. It means nothing. It will be gone. It's going to end up in someone's yard rusting to death. If it's not me, it'll be someone after me. If it's not someone after me, it'll be someone after me. But at some point, that thing will be a rust bucket, and no one will even remember who built it. What are we really living for? And if it's not for the one another's, and if it's not for the team, then we're missing the boat, and we're no different than Demas. And we should not be surprised when people walk away from God 
when we have been not teaching the things of God and allowing people to compromise with the world? It's time. Isn't it? It's time. So as I close, let me just say this with with a takeaway. We need to cultivate healthy Christian relationships. We need a good set of leaders, and we need a diverse family of God, don't we? We need some bullheaded types. We need some strong types. We need compassionate types. We need hardworking types. We need intelligent types. We need all types. We need short, praise God. We need tall. We need all types. We need red, black, white, yellow, you name it. We need them all. Because in Christ, there's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's one man. That's the family of God. And let us not compromise on that, but let us give to that. Let us serve that. Let us be all about that. Amen? Would you stand with me? Um, Let's pray. Lord, your word is so beautiful, the way you just tie everything together. And as you know, Lord, I'm going to leave this stage and I'll wonder all, all of the things I missed, all the ways I could have better communicated, the time I could have spent in a different way. But yet, I know that it is not about me. It's all about you. And that your spirit is bigger than the flesh that stands on this stage. Lord, you were able to speak to your people in spite of me. And to that, I say thank you. And so as your spirit has spoken, may we leave here encouraged and strengthened by you and willing to make the sacrifices needed to be the community and family of God that we have. And we thank you for it. May it not be taken for granted. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Amen.